I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to Psalm 58 this morning as we keep moving through the Psalms. We are admittedly only scratching the surface of this amazing book. There's 150 of these Psalms. We're only doing about 27 of them during our series together. So we're picking and choosing, but I think you'll see after today, no one can accuse us of cherry-picking our favorites. So uh, one of the things that anybody who's spent any time in the Psalms has surely recognized by now is that every now and then you get tripped up by language that you just don't know what to do with. And that one of the most common things we're tripped up by is language about enemies, language about vengeance, language that includes prayers for brutal violence against the oppressors who oppress God's people. This language hits us sometimes even in the middle of psalms that we otherwise like. Psalms that seem familiar and comfortable. I mean, even Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, ends with a banquet, a victory banquet spread in the presence of my enemies where they have to watch while we eat and celebrate their demise. These, these psalms create problems for all of us. It's, there's a personal problem for believers. Many of us, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, probably all of us, come across language in the Psalms sometimes that we find revolting. Psalm 109. Praise for the, 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 the end of the oppressor and praise that and in the end that the oppressor's children would be fatherless and that no one would take them in as they wandered the land looking for bread. Psalm 137. Praise that the enemies would be destroyed and that even their babies would be killed. That's a problem for believers. What do we do with language like that? And there's a problem for unbelievers. I mean, these psalms, language like that, provides a, a wealth of, of fodder for what you might call the super skeptics. You know, the, 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 the Dawkinses, the Christopher Hitchens and the Richard Dawkinses of the world who look at religion and say, more harm than good. These things stir up more violence than they bring peace the history of the world in the eyes of super skeptics like these guys is the history of one religious conflict after another. And you've got your script for it right here in the Psalms. So they raise problems for some people who might be outsiders looking at Christianity and evaluating it. Is this kind of language, this endorsement of religious violence among God's people, is this the same plane as Islamic terrorism? And, and, and we must ask, is it? And then there's, there's just a basic problem of understanding. What do, we, what do we do with prayers like these? And how do we relate them to the language of forgiveness and to the prayer for one's enemies that Jesus calls for in the New Testament? Or even prayer for those who persecute you and the emphasis other places in the Bible on personal sin and cries for mercy, not emphasizing the sins of other people, but your own. These psalms raise a lot of questions, and there's a lot of them. So we have to, we have to just face them head on. And that's what we're going to try to do today. Psalm 58 is just one of several psalms that pray for the downfall of enemies. They're often called the imprecatory psalms, cursing psalms. Uh, psalm 58 falls in a section full of these. Uh, the, the 50s and 60s in the psalms has got several prayers against enemies. And, uh, and they're, they're scattered throughout the rest of the, Bible, or the rest of the collection as well. 
So what we want to do this morning is just take this one psalm as an example of the larger category of psalms and do our best to understand where it's coming from. So that when we come across these psalms in other places, uh, we'll be able to, to make some sense of them and even put them to use. I think that one of the things we need to know is that lament, uh, crying out to God for, for mercy and deliverance in the midst of, of some sort of distress, lament is the most popular category of psalms in the psalms. There's more of them than any other kind of psalm. And that one of the reasons they're so popular is that God's people were so often under the thumb of powerful enemies. They were even at the mercy of powerful enemies. So one of the things we're going to have to do this morning, I think, if we want to make sense of this and then put it to use, is first understand it on its own terms. We have to put ourselves in the position of the people of Israel and imagine why these prayers would have been the only thing they could pray in their circumstances, the only prayers that made sense for them facing what they were facing. We want to imagine the prayers from their perspective and then look at the prayers from ours. We want to see how should our perspective be more like theirs and, and, and really answer this main question. Should we, as Christians, rejoice in vengeance? Is that a good thing to do? I want to begin by reading the whole psalm. Then I'm going to go over the psalm First, make sure that what the psalmist is praying is clear to you. Make sure you can see the terms he's using, what he's actually asking for. Then I want to consider why the psalm, that prayer, makes sense. And then only at the end do I want to come back and us consider together how should we use a prayer like this one for ourselves. So, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read Psalm 58. To the choir master, according to... Do not destroy a mictum of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel a heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely, there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to first make sure that you see what the psalmist prays. You can follow along with this outline on the worship guide that you got when you came in if you want to. 
what the psalmist prays, then why his prayer makes sense, and then how we should use his prayer in prayers like this. I want to just start by making sure you understand what the psalmist prays. The psalm is pretty straightforward. It breaks down into three parts. One sets the stage, that's verses 1 and 2, or excuse me, 1 through 5. Uh, verses 6 to 9 are the heart of the prayer, the centerpiece of it. That's where you actually get the prayer itself. Uh, that's, that's the ask, you might say. And then verses 10 and 11 are the celebration. They celebrate in advance the deliverance the psalmist believes God is going gonna, is gonna to accomplish for him. So I want to just walk you through each of those three parts of the psalm. There's the stage that gets set at the beginning, then there's the ask, then there's the celebration. So the psalm opens with a direct address to these perpetrators. Do you indeed declare what is right? My translation says, you gods... The word for gods there is just a word for mighty ones. So most people think he's talking about rulers, people in power, maybe judges who, who are doing the oppressing. So he's asking them, these judges, these authorities put into place by God who establishes governments to protect and provide for their people, asking those accountable to God for the way they're using their power, do you decree what is right? Do you judge uprightly? No. No. A resounding no. These verses are a challenge to how these powerful people have chosen to use their power. Not to seek the interests of others, but only to seek more power. They plot and they plan and then they scheme and then they attack. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Then your hands deal out violence on earth. And it's not like they just slip up every now and then. This evil is who they are. Verse 3 says, they're wicked are estranged from birth. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. This is who they are. They've got venom in them at their core like a serpent. It just spills out of them. It's not like a one-time slip up from ignorance or from having a bad day. They do what they do because they are who they are. And they're hardened. It's not just that they're unaware sort of drifting along with the norms. Verse five say, or verses uh, 4 and 5 say that they're like a snake that's stopped up its ears, willfully shutting itself off to the voice of the one who would tame it, charm it, bring it in. They have chosen and are hardened in this style of ruling that, that they're carrying out in Israel. There's no getting through to them. They're just going to do what they're going to do. Unless... And that's, that stage setting sets us up for the next few verses. The ask, the center of the prayer. They're just going to do what they're going to do and they don't want to be any different than they are. And they'll just do what they're going to do unless somebody intervenes. So the prayer to God here is straightforward. We know what they're trying to do. They're plotting. They're dealing out violence. They're looking to hurt anyone who can't stop them. So God, just stop them. Please just stop them. Break their teeth in their mouths before they bite. Tear out their fangs before they rip us to pieces. The images of, of verses 6 to 9 are just several different vivid pictures of a failed plot, a foiled plot of, of, of someone setting out to do something and then being stopped in their tracks before they can do it. They want to devour us, so please break their teeth. Right now, their power is concentrated and deadly. So please, let it just melt away, just run away like water. Imagine 
Uh, imagine water spilled onto a, a steaming hot slab of concrete. You know what happens to it? It just sort of spreads and then evaporates. That's what the psalmist wants. Let them just spread away. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. It's like he imagines, you guys know that little trail of slime behind a snail. It's like he imagines that as the snail's body and life just being left behind as it moves forward. Let it completely run out before it gets where it's going. And then, of course, the most vivid of all, the, the, the praying that they would be like a stillborn child before they have life that they can use to destroy the lives of others, cut them off. Prayer is as straightforward as a prayer can get. And then there's the celebration. We know how he set the stage. We know who he's talking about. We know what he wants. He wants them cut off. In the verses 10 and 11, it turns into almost like a preemptive Thanksgiving psalm. It's like he already considers this work done. He's celebrating it before it's been done. And I think this is where the most troubling language comes in. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance and he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. That's not a metaphor. That's for real. And verse 11 gives us the point. The point of the whole prayer. What he's praying for is that people will get to look and see there is a difference between right and wrong. There is a power above the powers who make sure right prevails over wrong. There is a God who judges on earth. So what does the psalmist pray? He prays for God to be true to his word. To establish justice by crushing oppression. That's what he wants. He wants everybody to see that might does not make right. I want us to, before we move, we all, I think, are, are preconditioned to, to jump to what can we do with this. And we're going to go there. But before we do, I, I want us to sit with this prayer a little bit longer. I want us to make sure we can feel what the psalmist would have felt. To make sure we know why this prayer makes sense before we criticize this prayer. Because I, I think it's obvious. We hear language like, like washing your feet in somebody else's blood and we shrink back. It's disgusting. It seems barbaric. It seems beneath civilized, well-adjusted people. And, and honestly, it would be easy to just chalk this language up as a relic of a former time in which things were a lot harder than they are now. A rougher time that we're glad we don't live in. And it, it belonged really well, fit really well in the ancient world. You don't have to go to many museums with collections of, of ancient history, see much of their artwork before you recognize what a rough, brutal time that would have been to be alive. Not just because of the way they carried out warfare, because of the styles of punishment they used, but even the way they entertained themselves. I mean, you look at, the, at, what, at, at these, these gladiator rings, these matches, I mean, it was just awful. And this language fits pretty well be easy to just explain it away as a, a relic of another time. Even if it wasn't for all this brutal language, this graphic language about celebrating someone else's death, I think too that, that it's hard to connect with the notion of enemies for, for many of us that we fear and resent like the psalmist did. That might be far removed from your experience. May not be. 
for reasons we can talk about later, or we will talk about later, but for many of you, it, it, it may be far removed from your experience to have an enemy that you just live with in your mind that you want gone. So it can be easy to spiritualize these prayers and think of sin and Satan and death. That's not wrong to do. Those are enemies that will be crushed. The Bible celebrates the downfall of death through Jesus. It's possible and and right to have that in mind. But we can't just jump straight to that. Because this psalmist knew who he was praying about. We need to take it seriously. Before we dismiss it or explain it away or even try to square it with what the New Testament teaches. C.S. Lewis, in, his, in a chapter in his book on the Psalms, a chap, in a chapter on the, uh, the judgment Psalms and the, the cursing Psalms, he reminds us that it's, it's where we find cover that we hope to find game. When you look at a place that, that's not immediately obvious to you, where something's unclear, something, there's something perhaps hidden there, something we need to pay attention to and discover. Where there's cover, we hope for game. So I want, to, I want us to look inside the cover a little bit more and peer in, put, to sort of part the, the leaves and the branches on these bushes and look and see what's inside. I think one of the reasons some of us shrink back from language like this and think that we're above using language like this is that, that many of us have never been under the thumb of an oppressive regime. So, so friend, if, if you're shrinking back from this language, it could be because you haven't had to fear like they did or to wonder who will protect you from those who are meant to protect you. It takes a certain level of comfort and ease and safety to see yourself as above this longing to have those who took everything from you and or those you love thinking that they're above all consequences get what they deserve. This longing to have the record set straight to have the the difference between right and wrong established, proven. One commentator says that these prayers have the, this is a quote from him, the shocking immediacy of a scream to startle us into feeling something of the desperation that produced them. I think that's a great way to think about what these, these prayers do. They have the shocking immediacy of a scream meant to shock us into feeling Something of their desperation. The Psalms, all through the Psalms, unique among all the different kinds of writing there is in the Bible, the Psalms are here meant to touch and kindle us, this writer says, rather than simply to address us. And that's what these Psalms are doing. They are screaming to us from the place of oppression. C.S. Lewis, back in the the same essays I mentioned a minute ago, he he notes that, that we often... I don't know if I'm speaking for you here. I'm speaking for myself. We often fear judgment, but the Psalms celebrate judgment. The Psalms say, yes, judge, please, judge. We think of judgment as something that would hurt us. They saw judgment as their chief hope. And he says the reason is because we tend to imagine ourselves as the defendant. We tend to put ourselves in the dock. But they, they imagine themselves as the plaintiff. So we cry for mercy instead of justice. Rightly so. We'll talk about that more in a minute. 
They cried for justice instead of injustice. You see the difference? We often cry for mercy instead of justice. They were crying for justice instead of injustice. There's a place for both sorts of prayers, for reasons. Excuse me, for reasons that we're going to talk about. But we first need to see why their prayer is so important. These were people who were longing for a day in court. They were longing for a judge that wasn't on the payroll. They wanted a judge who'd be willing to hear them, despite their powerlessness and their poverty, despite their inability to pay any sort of bribe. They wanted to be heard. Because they knew they were in the right. But they had no one around them to clarify that for the rest of the world. That's why this psalm, did you notice it begins with corrupt judges? Do you decree what is right? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No! And it ends with God as judge. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. This was a people who longed for their day in court because they knew they had a case. They just didn't know if they had anyone to hear it. Israel was for centuries a pawn in the massive game of chess played by the powers that were surrounding them. This psalm was written, the the, the heading of the psalm places it in the time of David, but it would have been collected and sung and celebrated throughout all of Israel's history, most of which, after David, was lived under the thumb of one imperial ruler after another. So they were just like a pawn in somebody else's game. They were taken into exile by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians took out the Assyrians, so they became pawns of the Babylonians. And then the Persians take out the Babylonians, and they're pawns of the Persians. And then the Greeks take out the Persians, and they become the pawns of the Greeks, who get taken out by the Romans, and now they're the pawns of the Romans. But they're just, they're just a game piece to be used. They're like the... They are, or another, another way to think of it, they're just the board on which these other nations are playing out their game. No one thinks of them. No one cares about their interests. No one hears their cry. To live like that under an occupying force brings a kind of, it brings a kind of psychological stress and desperation that you just can't understand otherwise. To have nobody to speak for you, to see you, to protect your interests. If, if that isn't where you are, if that feels like, if it feels to you like these emotions we've just read are beneath a godly person, then I think you and, and me, we need to work at empathy with people who have known and lived through this sort of oppression. A couple years ago, Time Magazine did a profile on the experience of a Yazidi woman named Nadia who was captured as part of a systematic ISIS plot to wipe out the Yazidi population in northern Iraq. It's a small minority, non-Muslim, hated by their neighbors. ISIS took a special interest in them when they were first asserting their power in Iraq. They were at the center of ISIS's plot to not just wipe out the population, but to reinstitute sexual enslavement of non-Muslim women. This Time magazine profiled Nadia's experience living as a young woman in a village that was taken out by ISIS. She was captured from her home along with her whole family and herded into a building where they separated the men from the women first, killed the men, including six of her brothers. Separated then the women, the elderly, from the young, killed the elderly. 
and then sent the women to another facility where they'd be divided up and distributed among the ISIS fighters. That was her life. She had nothing she could do about it. In our country, thanks be to God, we have largely been free of this sort of fear for a long time. The rule of law in America has been a remarkable achievement. One for which I think we should give thanks. One we should continue to try to steward as citizens of this country, to be part of of upholding the rule of law so that the, the weak are protected from the strong. But even here, even in our own country, it's our history is riddled with the same sorts of oppression. It's not a uniform history. It's not by any means uh, only one-sided. But we need to try to empathize with the experience of people in our past who have known this sort of oppression. To read the accounts of the lives of Cherokee Indians, for example, in the 1820s, living not far from here, just east of here in the hills, who were pulled out of their homes, out of their sacred lands, the lands that had, that had been everything to them, their whole way of life, and shipped to a place they didn't know, where they couldn't do what they had done, where they, they, they didn't have ancestors buried nearby, where they didn't have the game they had grown up hunting. Imagine that experience of the Trail of Tears, what that would have been like for them, or read a slave narrative, like the Confessions of Nat Turner. Imagine yourself as a slave who's whose body was at the full disposal of the whims and the desires of your master and your master's guests. Imagine, imagine being a slave woman in that setting. Imagine being the husband of a slave woman whose body was at the disposal of the powers that be. Or read books even now that reflect the fear and outrage of many people of color now. Books like those by ta Coates or Michael Eric Dyson. And the experience of watching as innocent people are killed without consequence. While a staggering number of black men sit in prisons, many of them for relatively minor offenses. Or watch some of those Planned Parenthood videos where people talk of harvesting and peddling the body parts of innocent, helpless human lives that can't even speak for themselves or pray. You you think about, imagine these experiences living like this and you can see more clearly why someone might justly pray, how long? When do I get my day in court? Who will hear my case? Is there a God who judges on earth? And you might pray, understandably, crush the evil power before it goes any further. So why does this prayer make sense? Because the powerless and the oppressed want to know that somebody sees. That somebody knows. That somebody is going to hold the oppressor to account. They want to know That there is a difference between righteousness and wickedness. And that the powerful don't get to decide what that difference is. That God alone decides the value of all human lives. This prayer makes sense when you've been where this psalmist was. So what do we do with it? 
now for ourselves? Is it okay to pray this prayer now? That's a big question. You're going to get a complicated answer from a guy who loves nuance, all right? But bear with me. I want to use the last few minutes to talk about what does it look like for Christians to use a prayer like this for the overthrow of, of oppressive enemies, of, of righteousness and justice. I want to give you three things, I think, that, that should guide us as we respond. I think we're going to need wisdom that is that's deeper, more complicated than what you're about to get in ten minutes. But I want to just point you to three factors, three things that should be on our minds and in our hearts as we work through these prayers and think about how to use them well. Three things that should guide our response. Here's the first one. How should we respond to this prayer? Well, well first, we should see ourselves among the wicked and we should cry out for mercy. That's the first thing. We should see ourselves, this is for every one of us, friends, we should see ourselves among the wicked, not the righteous. And we should cry out for mercy rather than what we deserve. Because we deserve the justice that we crave. We deserve to be on the receiving end of the judgment that this psalm longs for. So so this psalm takes on the experience of a plaintiff who's got a just complaint against someone else. That's what this psalm does. But this psalm is just one in a whole collection full of psalms, many of which say other things, fill out the picture, and keep us from fully identifying with this perspective. There's more to it than, than just what's represented in this psalm. So, so Psalm 51, which we looked at together a few weeks ago, In that psalm, there's a reference that sounds almost just like verse 3 of our psalm. Our psalm says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. David, in Psalm 51, says almost the same thing about himself. I was brought forth in iniquity, he says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David sees himself with the wicked. Or Psalm 14, which says, There is none righteous. No, not one. Psalm 58 says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Then David tells us earlier, There is no one righteous. Not even one. Paul picks the same thing up in Romans chapter 3. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which gives us some of the most beautiful language calling for peace and forgiveness, also takes guilt out of the realm of the obvious and the external that everyone can see and know they're not guilty of. He takes guilt out of that realm of the, of course I haven't sexually abused or killed anyone like these powers did. And into the realm of the subtle and the internal so that your lust, in your lust, is using a woman's body without accountability or consent. In your anger, Jesus says, you wish your brother dead and treat his life as of no value compared to your interests. In our hearts, we belong with the wicked. So, no matter how wicked the person we want to be freed from may be, none of us comes at them from a place of innocence. There is none of us who can look down on anyone else. 
And we need to recognize this prayer for justice. Psalm 58. This prayer for justice, if it's answered, it means death for me. It means death for me unless somebody else takes what I deserve. Unless the the message of the gospel is true. That there was actually one righteous man. One perfectly innocent man. And this man willingly gave up his body to the powers that be. He took on himself the punishment that justice demands from people like me. So that as his blood was poured out, God treated it as if it were the blood of the wicked, my blood, in which you could have bathed your feet. It was shed because it had to be. In answer to this prayer, if anyone were to have mercy in their own lives. In Christ, Paul tells us that God became just and the justifier. The one who hears the prayer of this psalmist to establish the difference between right and wrong once and for all and the one who hears the prayer of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. I am guilty, I know it. Have mercy on me. In Jesus, God answers both prayers. And He will forgive you this morning no matter what you've done if you will simply trust in Him. So far, so good. But does Jesus mean that we give up on prayers like this psalm altogether? I've just said, when we pray, we need to think of ourselves in the position of the wicked. We must cry out for mercy because we deserve the judgment this psalm prays for. Has Christ, the fact that He's come and taken on this punishment, has it made prayers like this irrelevant? No. No, in fact, the New Testament continues to use language like this for what will happen to the wicked. Just like this psalm. Revelation is full of language like this. So how do we reconcile it? I'm going to give you the next two points. Next two things. How do we should respond to this psalm? Two more things to finish up. Here's the next one. We should pray to God for vengeance. Just like this psalm does. We should pray to God for vengeance so that we give up seeking vengeance for ourselves. Prayers like this one, for God to take vengeance on the wicked, are how we give up our own responsibility to take vengeance for ourselves. That the the kind of prayers for the persecutor, the love for enemies that Jesus calls for, become possible for us when we let God separate right from wrong rather than feeling like we've got to. One writer said that this, notice that this prayer here in Psalm 58, prayers like this throughout the Psalms, is not rooted in bitterness. It's how we let go of bitterness. It's how you say that what I deserve and whether or not I'll get it, it is all in God's hands. It is not in my hands and I trust him with it. So this writer says, this is the cry of the weak one who trusts the strong one. The cry of the hurting person who trusts the one who will make it all better. She can trust someone else to make all the wrongs right and get on with her life. And in that way, the wrath of God is the central hope of God's people. Bonhoeffer wrote something similar. 
He says, nowhere does the one who prays these psalms want to take revenge into his own hands. He calls for the wrath of God alone. So therefore, he must dismiss from his own mind all thought of personal revenge. He's got to be free from his own thirst for revenge. So, so friends, here what I want you to make, make sure you notice is that there is a very big difference between acknowledging the rightness of this prayer and believing that we have a responsibility to take up arms and be the agents of this kind of justice or retribution. That's not our job. In fact, how we find the power to pursue nonviolence in the face of injustice is to recognize that God is the one who will establish the difference between right and wrong. He will clarify what is and he will dish out the vengeance that's necessary. It is not my job. We are not crusaders. We are not jihadists. Even as we long to see right from wrong separated out and wrong wiped from the face of the earth. Here's the last thing. I'm going to finish here. How should we respond to this prayer? We should pray to God for His kingdom to come. Knowing, friends, that there is no peace without victory. We pray to God, like Jesus taught us, for His kingdom to come, but we know as we pray, there is no peace without victory. Jesus, in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, He pointed to peace and goodwill, He told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And at the same time, he teaches us to pray. He starts his model prayer with a prayer that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what it looks like for God's kingdom to come all throughout the Bible from beginning to end in Revelation as clearly as anywhere else? It looks like judgment on the wicked. It looks like death to those who oppose his peaceful coming rain it looks like the complete destruction of everything that stands against him when we pray for God's kingdom to come we are praying for a vengeance that will make us rejoice that's how Stephen one of the first martyrs in the book of Acts prays as he's being stoned Lord don't count this against them for he forgives his enemies but in Revelation chapter, chapter 6, the martyrs cry out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? How long do we have to wait before the truth gets told? I think what this means is that, is that there are two ways for a prayer, for judgment, for a day in court to be answered. We can pray with Stephen for an individual person that's right in front of us, with a face and a name, that they will know forgiveness like we have. We pray for any person we ever get the chance to come in contact with, that God will bring them to repentance so that Jesus gets what they deserve instead of them. Jesus and his death for sinners is one way the prayer of Psalm 58 gets answered. So we seek the salvation of everyone that we come across, no matter how evil. The other way for a prayer for judgment to get answered is that the oppressor is exposed himself at the last day. For now, Christians are ministers of reconciliation, Paul says. We seek peace now before it's too late. We bear the message of the cross to anyone who will listen no matter what they've done. 
But at the same time, exactly the same time, we pray that God will bring His kingdom in, even if that means the death of everybody who stands against it. So we don't pray these prayers for a coworker that's causing you trouble, a neighbor that's got boundary issues, a family member who's caused you a lot of pain, even for someone who's done you serious harm. We don't pray these prayers for people whose repentance we want to seek. We don't put names and faces to them. But friends, we do pray these prayers because we pray that God's kingdom will come. And that kingdom only comes when God wins a victory over all who stand against it. A victory that is total and complete, worthy of rejoicing. That's how we respond to these prayers. God, help us. God, please do help us to know how to live in this in-between time where we want the forgiveness and freedom of anybody who's suffering under the effects of their sin, just like we have of our own. But we also long to be in a place where sin doesn't wreak so much havoc in the life of people who don't deserve what's done to them. We want peace through victory. So we do pray, Father, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we would have the opportunity to rejoice when everyone who's ever lived sees once and for all that there is a God who judges on earth. And we tell you now, we confess yet again, that our only hope for joy on that day rather than destruction, is Jesus. We come to you in Him and Him alone. Amen.